Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. We have two big live shows happening in July. First, at the Nerdmouth Theater in Los Angeles, we have Carrie Kenny Silver from Reno 911 and The State. Also, stand-up Baratunde Thurston and actor Cooper Barnes. And then that same night, July 26, at the People's Improv Theater in New York, we have Shang Wang, the sexiest man alive, ladies. If you are ladies who are more or less me. Also that night, the beloved New York storyteller Faye Lane and author and solo performer extraordinaire Ms. Jen Nails. Find out more about live shows at risk-show.com slash tour. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Extra Risk, where we give you just a little bit more of the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Juanitos behind me now. Today we have two stories for you. The second one will come from our beloved Mr. Tom Shalou. We always love when Tom does the show because he really is, when it comes to storytelling, one of the greatest We call his story, My Heyday. But the first story comes to us from Simon Amstel, a remarkable young British comedian. I think when you hear this, you will sense, like I do, that this guy is at the very beginning of a huge career. Uh, You can find him at simonamstel.co.uk. And here he is now with a story we call Going Solo. I say no, 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 no No more tequila, no I say yeah, 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 yeah I got a chunga, yeah Hello I have been in this strange land for three days now. I'm here alone. I like this because you, f- you find out if you are in a country alone who you really are. I think who we tend to be are the fixed perceptions of the people around us. If you are alone, then who are you? Who are you? <laughs> it turns out I am a horny sex pest. <laughs> And not a successful one. <laughs> just somebody thinking about but not getting any sex all the time. Like, it's terrible, ridiculous addiction. Like being addicted to heroin but never having ever found anyone to give you heroin. 
Oh, another whole week without any heroin. How will this fatal addiction end? <laughs> I was in Amsterdam for three days recently, thinking about sex the whole time that I was there, apart from 20 minutes in the Anne Frank Museum. <laughs> And I was there for an hour. <laughs> the most sexually exciting it got for me in that strange land was being at this swimming pool that had been recommended. I was changing into my swimming shorts and then a man said to me, oh no, this is a nude pool. I did not hear nude because of his accent. I heard new and thought that was just some weird judgment on my shorts. <laughs> so I said, well, they're all I've got. And I ventured <laughs> towards the swimming pool to find everyone was there naked and now looking at me like I'm a deviant. <laughs> and I had to take the decision to take the shorts off, which was quite easy because I was there alone. There's no judgment. If I was there with a friend, that would have been quite an awkward time for us. Oh, these are our willies. <laughs> we may not have curtsied, but... <laughs> but what I realised as I was swimming naked is this is not peculiar to the people around me. It's the cultural norm. But what they didn't realise is there was a British pervert in there with them. However, I told this story a while ago and some people from Amsterdam were in the audience and they said afterwards, we don't know what pool that was. <laughs> so it is not the cultural norm. <laughs> I think that need for adventure and sex that really kicks in when you're in another country, it comes from a definite fear of decaying and death. And, uh, right? And... Uh, <laughs> You know, I feel like we need to have this sex because we feel like time is running out. And I did not know I was going to have a crisis about age until I was about to hit 30. And I was wandering along the street, seeing myself in a reflection in the shop window, wearing some skinny jeans, a hoodie. And I thought, does my head look too old for these clothes? <laughs> And I couldn't do anything that day because I thought everything in my life depends on youth. My personality is sort of a bit cheeky. You have to be young for that personality. Oh, young Simon, he's so cheeky. Uncle Simon is creepy. <laughs> and Grandpa Simon, he is in prison. <laughs> I also used to exclusively fancy young men. I thought I needed to look like them in order to be with if that couldn't happen anymore, I needed a new look. So I got the clothes, some of the, which you are seeing tonight, these, this sort of look, so I don't have to look like a young guy. Now, people look at me thinking, oh, he must be a poet. <laughs> so I can be at a party, see a young guy, and he can look at me and think, oh, hello, his head looks young for his clothes. <laughs> It was also for me a fear of becoming my father. We do not have a great relationship. I was, uh, I was at his house recently. He invited me to one of his new kid's birthday parties. He started breeding again because <laughs> what if we run out of Jews? <laughs> and 
I don't feel great about going, we've got this terrible relationship. I, you know, I don't know these kids that well. We didn't grow up together. You know, it's, it's the same sperm. But it's a different womb. But you can't say that. You can't say that to a four-year-old on her birthday. You, you must write that in the card. But then my father gives me something of a lifeline that makes me feel more comfortable about going. He says, why don't you bring along some of your magic tricks that you used to do when you were a kid so you could entertain all the children? Because when I was, I wish this was younger, 17. (laughs) Because nobody ever said to me, oh, it's nice, Simon, you do this magic. You might like sex. And so since then, I've really had to make up for lost time. There's no sex until I was 21. And now, you know, there's been a bit of sex, but I very much miss the magic. (laughs) But I felt good about the idea of having a prop, having something to do, being the entertainer at this party made me feel all right about being there. I went along with some balloons so I could make balloon animals for all the children. But he had not invited children. It was just his children, three Girls, and I ordered 200 balloons from the internet, and once I'd made a couple of poodles and a giraffe, which is the same thing, (laughs) I had to talk to my father. And this is how it always goes. His opening question is always, so? Which is a very broad question. (laughs) He follows it up with, so what else? I've accepted after years of therapy that he was a distant father. I can't accept he's such a bad interviewer. (laughs) He then says, you know, you must come over more often. Really? Because I am here now. And it's like going to a restaurant, there being no food, and you saying, come again. But we didn't talk for quite a while. Then he phoned me and he said, Simon, I have been thinking. One day I will be on my deathbed. And if we don't have a relationship now, there will be regret. And so now we have a reason to (laughs) socialise. And I was dumped recently by perhaps the first person I've ever loved. Oh, it doesn't help, but thank you. Um, In the same week as that happening, my washing machine broke, and... (laughs) Fuck you, this is my life. (laughs) That's what my show should be called. I... I had my father over to fix the washing machine. I thought, perhaps... We could, we could talk for the first time. There's something to talk about. There's pain that needs some nurturing, some wisdom, perhaps. He, couldn't, he didn't have the emotional capacity to discuss the end of a relationship. What he could do was fix the washing machine, and I felt very angry that day. That's all he could do. But I've since come to the realisation that he did come over a day early to fix the washing machine. He knew I was upset, and he did what he could do. And so that's the love. So now when people say to me, Oh, it's a nice shirt, Simon. Is it new? No. My father loves me. (laughs) And that's enough, isn't it? That's enough, because he won't be around forever, and at some point I'll have to have that relationship with a plumber. (laughs) And I am alone in this flat. I live alone, which is fine as long as you make plans. That is my conclusion, especially if you don't have a normal job. Because if you live alone and you don't make plans, here is what happens. You wake up and it just gets darker. (laughs) 
I caught myself a few weeks ago clutching my cat to my chest, saying, we're all right, aren't we? <laughs> there is no one there taking care of me. There are no rules. I'm now watching the least ethical porn, and I don't even know... <laughs> I don't know how it happened. I used to say to people, and it was true, I can watch porn as long as the people in it are clearly smiling and enjoying what they're doing. <laughs> Not the case anymore. <laughs> I'm now rarely watching anything unless there's a person in it who's been tricked. <laughs> Everything in my fridge is fair trade and organic. The porn is neither. <laughs> Just have to make plans, right? Just have to make plans. And that's why you're here. So you've done something with your night. Because tomorrow people say, what did you do last night? They say, oh, I went to a cool podcast. Because <laughs> I live in New York. I'm alive. I'm alive. <laughs> Are you, though? <laughs> Thank you very much. Have a good night. grade, I remember I was standing off to the side, we were in the lunchroom, it was the end of the year party, we had decorated the lunchroom, and my health teacher, Mr. Moss, was dancing to King Tut, and he was doing the authentic King Tut dance, he was like, a condo made a stoner, and we are all like, Mr. Moss, it was amazing. Mr. Moss was the cool teacher. He was the, he was the teacher who was going to do that kind of thing. And I remember thinking, oh, Mr. Moss, he's so cool, this guy, you know. Uh, but I, I probably didn't realize that that scene was probably playing out in every junior high across the country at that time. Because King Tut was a big song. It was like a hit, a hit comedy song. And Steve Martin's comedy albums were on the charts. I had had one myself. My sister g gave it to me for Christmas. I remember she gave it to me on Christmas Eve. We opened our presents on Christmas only, not Christmas Eve, like some of you heathens. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but we, we this, this particular Christmas, she said, uh, she handed it to me on Christmas Eve. She said, open this, just me and you. So I opened it, and in the card it said, don't show mom and dad. <laughs> because there was some adult material on it. So I stuck it in my closet. But occasionally when my parents weren't home, I would, I would put it on the turntable 
and play. Let's get small. Yeah. Okay. The year was 1999. The city was at my feet. I was, I was in a strange land, but it was starting to feel like home. I had spent a decade trying to claw my way into the business. And I was finally starting to work. You know, I thought I was really cool in 1999. And everything was promised. I don't know, some of you young people don't remember what it was like back then. <laughs> the late 90s, everything was happening for us in America. There was a dot-com boom going on. Everyone was quitting their job. They were, everyone cashed in their stock options. The whole country was loaded up with options. I didn't even know what they were. AOL was like $110 a share. No end in sight. Sun Microsystems, Lucent Technologies. Everybody was making like 100 grand a week. I was not involved in stocks, but I had just worked on a Pizza Hut commercial. And that was pretty cool. It was cool. I was working. I was, I, you know, I knew that I, I was, I, I had done some stand-up spots. I was getting on at the clubs, Caroline's on Broadway. I was working on Broadway. I was also working on a show, a little cable show called The Daily Show. Oh, now you say that now. The Daily Show, success. But at the time, it was just a cable show. Nobody knew it was on. I had to tell people, hey, watch me on the show. And they're like, oh, you're on cable. That's great. You're on cable. They said it, it was like, cable back then was, there was no Mad Men. Cable was like, it was just a step above public access. <laughs> and they were excited. They'd be like, oh, that's great. You're on a cable comedy show. That's really cool. Yeah, maybe you'll be on TV someday. <laughs> but I knew it was cool that I was on this show and I was working. It was Comedy Central. It was the clubs. So I felt like everything was going my way. And there I was working on this Pizza Hut set and I was playing a manager. I had graduated from my 20s. Now I was playing older characters. I was a Pizza Hut manager, so I was kind of the dorky manager, like, hey, you kids okay? <laughs> and all the kids that were there, uh, you know, we were doing like comic moments with them, you know, because they were ordering their pizza, they were out like high-fiving and doing, you know, things that, that adolescents do. Uh, now, they weren't really adolescents. They were in their young 20s, but in, in commercials, people in their young 20s, they play like young adults slash uh, teens in commercials. So there they were, and there was this young actress, and I was, I was after her, this blonde actress. She looked, she was a cute little lollipop of a girl. <laughs> and I remember, you know, I was trying to hit on her, but I was all dressed up in the Pizza Hut gear, you know, so I was trying to overcome that. And then when we took a break and we had our meal break, they were all, all the kids were kind of hanging out together. I mean, they were in their 20s, they weren't kids, but they were acting like they were kids, and I was an older generation from them, which I clearly was but I didn't want to be because this was my heyday and I was going to start being predatory. <laughs> so I went up to that blonde girl and I said, oh, come, hey, you want to come out and see some stand-up? I'm playing Caroline's. Oh, yeah, I want to do stand-up. Yeah, 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 I'll come to Caroline's. Yeah, I'll get you tickets. See, that's what happens. I don't know if there's any comics here but, uh, in the audience, but I know that this is the way we work. You don't hit on girls. You get them to the show. Get them to the show. Then they're in the dark, they're in the audience, you're up there in lights, you know, you got that microphone, uh, power, uh, uh, alpha male. 
So I got her to the show, and then I did my little set, you know, and then we got off afterwards. She was like, oh, comedy, oh, I want to do comedy. I was like, hey, stick with me. Maybe you'll get in the business. <laughs> I'm using everything. I'm using every arrow in my quiver, you know? The next night, I was taping The Daily Show. Now, this was, I had a little third act segment. I would do a pre-tape over there in the basement, but they would have me come over every once in a while and do uh, a, a, a little uh, sit-down with John. So they would show the segment, and then they would cut back, and then John would be like, oh, thanks a lot. Thank you, Tom. And then I'd be like, oh, John, oh, no. oh Tom, John, John, and the banter. Oh, banter. <laughs> the witty banter, whose subtext is always, ah, oh, John, please keep, keep me on the show. Keep hiring me. Thank you. I want to stay here working on the show. Thank you. <laughs> but it's witty. <laughs> then after we taped, there she was, and I took, her, I took her to see John. She had worn her rollerblades to the set over there on the west side. She had rollerbladed over there in her miniskirt and rollerblades. <laughs> Predatory. <laughs> and so I rolled her over to meet John, and then, we, and then I, ah, yeah, John Stewart, and, oh, yeah, yeah, I know John, and then I took her out, and then, we, then I lived at 56th and 9th, and I, I, she held my shoulder, and I just walked her over. I wheeled her over to my apartment. <laughs> Get in there. <laughs> Got her into my bedroom, threw her on the bed. Predatory. <laughs> did you ever, I mean, oh, guys, did you ever pull off underwear over a pair of rollerblades? <laughs> Wheels spinning as you pull. <laughs> And the legs, they're heavy with the roll. They just fall to the side with the, the weight of the, the skates. <clears throat> Did you ever do that? Because I didn't. I didn't, but I had planned on it. But my sister came home, and then we had to go out, and we had some coffee with my sister, and she met my sister, and then I took her to the uh, Columbus Circle station and made out with her and then put her on the train. Oh, I rolled her onto the train. <laughs> I would do it next time. I'd get, that, I'd get the underwear over the rollerblades the next time I saw her. Because I knew now she was like a, a little, she was a little sweetheart of mine. She said, oh, call me. I will call you. Now, I was obsessed with her then. Pathetically, oh, this guy in his, in his early 30s, he's after this girl a decade younger than him. But at the time, you don't realize you're old. You're like, no, I'm, yeah, things are going great for me, everything. Pizza manager, mm, all right. <laughs> so I was calling her, and she did. She wanted to get together. We got together for coffee one day after an audition, but she was so busy. She was always working. She was doing TV. Then she went to L.A. to shoot some episodic TV. Then she got a feature film in L.A. She was there for a few months during the fall of 1999. The winter was approaching. The millennium is coming. Y2K fever. Don't you remember? <laughs> what it was like. We didn't know what was going to happen on that, that Y2K day, but I was ready for it. Then she was coming back and she was shooting a film in New York. Tom, I'm going to be in New York. Oh, and you know, it was always, it was always that thing like, Tom, and we'll get together then. Chum, you know, I'll have a good time then, you know? So she got back to New York and she was shooting the feature film. She was playing Steve Martin's daughter and I... I, I was calling her, and she, was, she would say, oh, you've got to come to the set. I can introduce you to Steve. And I was like, oh, yeah, that would be great. Steve Martin, wow, a comedy hero of mine. Yeah, don't. And then I was like, oh, the tables have turned. <laughs> now she's inviting me to the set. Now she's showing me the celebrities. No more arrows in my quiver. 
And then she would, uh, one time we got together in the afternoon, quick meeting, oh, Tom, Tom Steve, he's so deep. We get together after, uh, after our shoots, we go to dinner. He, he, ha he always has a table, he likes, he's a very private person. I was like, yeah, he sounds really private, sounds private. <laughs> and she was always talking about Steve, oh, he was so deep. I remember reading Steve's book and <laughs> I had always fancied myself. I'd always fancy myself like Steve Martin, you know, because I, after high school, I had worked the, the, uh, the, the circuit, the summer circuit, you know, playing the amusement parks, and he had worked at, uh, at the amusement parks in Disneyland and, uh, and places like that. He was a magician. And then, uh, and then he, he found himself kind of stumbling into stand-up comedy, just like myself. Here he is in the book. My life had been alternatively inching or leaping upward. I was proud of my job on the Smothers Brothers show. I had some cash. My sex life was abundant and selfish. <laughs> wow, abundant and selfish. That's where the comparison ended. <laughs> I always wanted to be abundant and selfish. I wanted to be the Maxim Magazine guy, the guy that they promised you're gonna be in Maxim Magazine. And I would hit on the comedy club waitresses, and then I'd take them home, did everything right, would make out on her doorstep, and then I'd say, hey, you wanna uh, make, make some coffee? We'll have some coffee? And they'd be like, no, I don't think so. And I'd be like, okay, I'll see you later. <laughs> I would walk home. I always took it, I didn't push. I wasn't Maxim Magazine enough. Riding home drunk with my head in the back of the cab, <laughs> watching the awnings go by. <laughs> that's right there, that's single in New York right there. That scene. There was like single in New York, there was like single in New York, single in New York, no, single in New York is riding in the back of a cab. <laughs> looking at blurry awnings, what the hell just happened? <laughs> so I was waiting for a break in the action and it was coming up on New Year's Eve and she promised we would go out on New Year's Eve, we'd get together on New Year's Eve, it'd be like Jack Lemon in the apartment, oh, would smooch on New Year's Eve. But I had a gig up in Rye, I had to work. I was doing stand-up at first night in Rye. I took the commuter train up there and I was working in the Rye Public Library. And I got there and it was like an 8.30 show, so I'd have time to get back in for the, for the new year. And it was like a, the children's section of the library and all the adults were sitting in these children's <laughs> plastic chairs. Like I was there and they were like this, like with their knees higher than their hips, you know? And I was like, oh, how's everybody doing? And it was like this plastic microphone and a bad karaoke machine. And it was like the worst kind of gig. But I didn't care because I was going to see this girl later on. So I got out of there. I got in the train. I went back. It was packed, taking the train in. The end of the millennium. We're coming back into Grand Central Station. And then I'm calling her. She's not answering her phone. I'm calling her. She's not answering. I walk through Times Square. I'm starting to head back up to my apartment on Ninth Avenue. The Times Square, I can't get through it. There's police everywhere, there's barricades. I have to walk up, 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 all the way up to Central Park and around and back down. I'm calling her, she's not answering. I'm running out of batteries, what's gonna happen? I get back to my apartment, I keep calling her. Midnight goes by, hooray, I hear that in Times Square, I can hear the faint roar of the people. I'm not even watching Dick Clark or anything on TV. I'm just sitting there waiting for her to call me back. Nothing, I finally fall asleep in my chair. And then my phone rings at four in the morning and I pick it up. And she says, Tom, you won't believe where I am right now. I said, where? She said, I'm on Central Park West. I'm on the balcony, overlooking the park. It's amazing. I just slept with Steve. <laughs> I'm like, why are you telling me? 
That's what 22-year-old girls are like. They're like guys. They just want to tell someone. And she was like, oh, it's amazing. It's really deep. We really have a connection. I was like, oh, yeah, connection, connection. I gotta, there's, there's a new century I got to get to. Bye. Got off the phone. But then I was up. I made some coffee. I remember looking out at the city, and it was like, this was 2000 in stark reality with the bags under my eyes. How pathetic was I? This guy, 33 now, he's hitting on these young actresses. And I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, I saw the movie Shop Girl. I read the book. Are you trying to tell me, Tom, that the movie Shop Girl is based on you? Of course I am. (laughs) Well, in my story, yes, it's just the one story. But I'm sure Steve Martin, I'm sure the girl in Shop Girl was a composite of this girl and the 22 other 22-year-olds he slept with in the 90s. I'm sure of it. Abundant and selfish. Wild and crazy guy indeed. But that wasn't to be my heyday, or was it? I mean, I was fine. I think of now. Now I go home, I'm gonna go home tonight, and I got my my wife and my two daughters They'll be asleep. Makes you feel like a man. When all the girls are asleep, you're like in the apartment. You're like, ah, this is the way it ought to be. Women asleep. Man, awake. Checking Twitter. But it does. It feels good. It feels right. And I look over the city now, and I see the lights, and I look down on it, and I think, this is my heyday. This is my heyday. Thank you. That's all for this time, folks. This is Kishibashi behind me now with a song called Bright White. And we just heard Tom Shalou. You got to check him out at tomshalou.com. Don't forget, we want your stories. If you go to risk-show.com slash submissions, you can pitch us. Pitch us stories from your own life. Remember, I also do online coaching. I could help you prepare a story for any purpose, really. Uh, It might be for work, might be for play, 
Might be you want some advice on starting a storytelling show in your town. You can find out about all of our online teaching and our in-person workshops, including corporate workshops, at thestorystudio.org. And if you're new to Risk, don't miss out on our two all-star episodes, two of our best episodes ever in our shop. And of course, when you buy them, you're helping to support us. Or you can just scroll down the front page of our site. On the right-hand side there, you'll see a little guy filling a gas tank. It says, Keep Risk Running. You can donate directly to us there. Check back in with us next week. And until then, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. You and me at the edge of the bed Looking at the faded pictures for you to see and me to see Murder in colonies land without rivers Ranging in the middle of some sad destiny These are our willies. <laughs>